0: Romans chapter 8, and we will look at uh, verse 5. Verse 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Father, may you make our hearts, our minds receptive to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be the one who takes his word, pierces the heart, encourages the heart, instructs the heart, And Father, may we be, all of us, impacted so by your word uh, that we will leave here in some measure uh, changed. And Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in the great chapter of Romans 8 for some time. Uh, We still have a, a lot of sledding to do in Romans chapter 8. Uh, it is by far one of the great chapters of the Bible. It is uh, a a verse, or I should say, a chapter that is well beloved by Christians throughout because it, it is the uh, book of it is the chapter of assurance. If you lack assurance, or if you want to know, uh, you know, am I in Christ? Romans chapter eight is what is your one of your uh, chapters to run to. In chapter 8, verse 1 is the thesis statement. Paul would make this statement, and then he would unfold this magnificent truth uh, throughout the chapter. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How fitting that he would say, therefore, because it draws us back to what we just went through in Romans 7, and that was some difficult difficult uh, um, arenas, because that's the Christian life. The things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Woe is me. So Romans chapter 8, in conjunction with chapter 6, as the bookends of Romans 7, provides for us the, the solid bedrock foundation of assurance. And within this chapter, uh, we've identified numerous, and we are on the second, I believe, of seven or at least eight treasures that unfold in this chapter. The first one was in Romans 8, 1 through 4, and that was our position in Christ. Basically, what Paul does in Romans 8, 1 through 4 is he tells us what justification has done. Justification, as in Romans 5, and then uh, the union in Christ in Romans 6, skip to Romans 8. He's telling us, well, this is what justification has done. The theological doc- doc- doctrine of justification by faith, it puts us in Christ, and once you're in Christ, you're never out of Christ. And so there's the great assurance. Your conduct will not take you out of Christ because your conduct never puts you in Christ. And so we have that in verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 13, we have the meat, so to speak, of Romans 8. It is the substance of the Spirit's work and what is required, or I should say what is provided by God through His Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. In verses 5 through 8, which we just read, Paul has contrasted those who live and think according to the flesh. Those are they that are outside of Christ. All their orientation is about this world. They have no capacity or no ability to see spiritual things. Interpret spiritual things. And the Revelation 4 and 5 that I read during the pastoral prayer. That person in the flesh has no clue what that means. Then he would contrast also in verses 5 through 8. Those who think and live according to the spirit. And I want to I go back on, for, on this just for a second is that Paul places so much emphasis on the mind. Is it within a few verses, he would mention the, ver, uh, the, the mind five times, three verses, five times. And this, this is an affirmation of what Solomon would say in Proverbs 23, 7. As you think, so you are. As you think, so you live. And if all you think is about worldly things, and all you think is about horizontal things, then that's how you're going to live. Whereas by the Christian has been delivered from horizontal thinking to to think and thus live on a vertical plane, which is the eternal. And so now we come to uh, verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. So that was a quick review just to bring us up to where we are. Because there is a clear break in verse 9 where Paul would say, you, however. Similar to a therefore. He says, you, however. So in the first eight verses, he's talking about a general crowd because he knows that the Roman Church is comprised of sixty percent roughly Gentiles, forty percent Jews, and within every church there are there are wheat and tares. There are those who are Christians and there are those who are not Christians, and there's also those who think they're Christians that are not Christians. And so you have this mixed bag in the church, and in true pastoral fashion, Paul preaches to both. He preaches and writes to both. And what he does in the first eight, as I mentioned, it's the two. Now he's shifting and he's talking just directly towards Christians, Roman Christians. He would say, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, as he would go on and read. And I won't read it again because we'll go back to this. What Paul is doing is making a clear break in the warnings of verse 7 and 8. And you can see the warnings of 7 and 8. He says, for the mind that's on the flesh, the mind that doesn't know Christ, the mind that's not been born again, the life has not been born again, It's that life that is hostile to God, that cannot submit to God's law, that's rebellion, and that it cannot please God. And all you have to do is look around the nation today, and you can see that we live in a nation that is hostile to God, that will not submit to the authority of God. And so what Paul is saying, that that's who you are if you live in the flesh. But he would say, no, you're not that way, Roman Christians. And then he's going to unfold some wonderful truths about the Spirit of God about the Spirit of God who only works in the believer unless it's for the unbeliever to bring to woo that person to the Lord Jesus. So let me just give you four just quick overviews of verses 9 through 11, and then we'll go back and bore down on these. And the first thing that we would note there is just what I said, the sharp contrast. He's talking now to Christian. So if you're a Christian, then this is you. This is who Paul was talking to. There's none of this mixed bag. He's now addressing you as a believer. The second thing that we note there, look at verse 11. It is the first reference to the resurrection. It's a first reference, uh, reference to the afterlife. He was saying in verse 11, if, and that should really read because... Because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also lift your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then if you compare verse 11 with verse 1, you will get what the whole of the Christian life is. The whole of the Christian life is lived in the now, not yet. It's lived in the now, not yet. And the now is there is no condemnation. Is it no matter, you will stumble and you will fumble and you will bumble your way to heaven. That's just the reality of the Christian experience. Romans 7 tells us that. But what he is telling us in Romans 8, 1, this is your experience now. Certainly it will be true when you get to heaven, there's no condemnation. But you live spotless now as a Christian. God looks at you and sees on you, as we sang, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus on you, so that no matter what you do, no matter how far you go down the prodigal trail, is that you will never lose your standing with God. Now, that should make you say amen and humble you. And if it makes you think, well, I can live like I want to, you don't get it. Because any understanding of what God has done in the heart of the sinner, making that person a child of God, and how we've been transformed from death to life, that should only produce gratitude. Gratitude and thanksgiving that leads to a life that wants to follow Him. And there's such a, a, a watered-down version of the gospel today that it's just believe on Jesus, and now that i got my eternity set, I'll go ahead and live like I want to in this world. That is not the biblical gospel, is you don't get to live like you want. That's what you did outside of Christ. Once you're in Christ, and we'll talk about this, you have been stamped, you have been sealed, and now you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, an inestimable price of Christ's blood. And so you not only are not your own, you don't want to be your own. And so you want to set yourself apart as I'm tired of living selfishly. I'm tired of living for self. That's what the world does. The Christian is done with self. The Christian, as I, uh, I told the Awana group on um, Uh, This past um, Wednesday, I told him that we have to learn, part of the Christian life is learning to put self on a shelf. It's learning to live with not, and someone once said, well, humility is thinking less of yourself. That, That sounds good, but you know what humility truly is? It's not thinking of yourself. It goes beyond not thinking less of yourself. It goes to the point is where you're obliviated that you're crucified with Christ and that he lives in you not you. Now that seems like a hard a hard sell and a hard way to live and thus Romans 8 and the power of the Holy Spirit because you can't live that life apart from God. You could, you didn't get that life apart from God and you can't live that life apart from God and thus he gets all the glory. So then this is what we see this uh uh, in chapter 8, what we're looking at, we see as an overview, of verse, 11, uh, verse 11 to 1, is that we live in the now and the not yet. We live now not in a perfected state, but we live now in a perfected standing. Don't misunderstand that. You live in a perfect standing with God. You do not live in a perfected state because you are constantly battling sin. And more often than not, we lose battles with sin. But you know the difference between the person who loses a battle with sin is that the righteous man falls seven times and gets right back up, Amen. as the proverb would tell us. There's a third thing that we see from verses 9 through seven, uh, 27, I should say. And I am very, I'm very, excited about getting to this. It's, uh, it's overwhelming to consider. But what we have in verses 9 through 7 is a detailed explanation on a large part of the Spirit's ministry in the believer, the Holy Spirit's work in the believer. I would argue that Romans chapter 8 provides some of the most clear and, the, and, the, and understanding of the Holy Spirit in the work of the believer. And then in chapter, uh, then the fourth thing I want us to see by way of overview is that the dominant theme in verses 9 through 11, which we're looking at this morning, is the word dwell, is the word dwell. You'll see that appear uh, throughout and we will look at that in more detail. And this dwelling is in reference to God's dwelling in us. Here's one of the great assurances that you have. You may be a Christian today and you're going through deep trials and you're going through darkness and you're going through some hard, difficult times and you're wondering, God, where are you? And you're thinking, are you there? Do you care? And yet as you go through those, those difficulties, you've got to remember two things. Number one, uh, you are always in the presence of God, whether you feel it or not, and God's presence is always in you whether you feel it or not. And so that's a great, great uh, 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 kind of a, 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 a dual application of assurance and it will help you in that because then now we're gonna look at these, this text. We're gonna start getting into this text and what you see then in verses nine through 11, twice in verse nine, three times actually in verse nine, once in verse 10 and twice in verse 11, it is reference to the Holy Spirit. It is reference to the Holy Spirit. You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit once. In fact, the Spirit of God twice dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ three times does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, That is the implication of the Spirit, because that's how He dwells. Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there's another one. Who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit. And there's a final one who dwells within you. This whole section, carrying on in verses 12 through 27, is all about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's all about Him, and He's he's identified in multiple ways. Notice what? In verse 9, He is recognized as the Spirit. That would be the Holy Spirit. He's also recognized as the Spirit of God. That would be the Spirit sent from the Father. He's also noted in verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. That was also sent by the Son. In verse 10, Christ in you, He's the Spirit of life. We see in verse 11 the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead and then back to verse 11 again his spirit who dwells in you. So what we see here is this magnificent picture of the spirit of God and we will see him in in his identities here in a minute. But I have two concerns two concerns in regards to uh, understanding the spirit of God in much of Christendom today. And here's my first one is that We underplay the Holy Spirit in the Christian experience. We don't don't give Him, we don't recognize Him as we should. And and with that, let's understand that the Spirit of God will elevate Christ. That is an acid test of whether or not it's of the Spirit. He will draw attention to the Lord Jesus. And so if if you say this is the Spirit of God, but Jesus is anywhere to be found, then you have to dismiss that. But here's what we have then, is that I'm fearful, and this would probably be our camp, is that don't be afraid of experience. Don't be afraid of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes in Reformed circles, and sometimes in, 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 in these type of, of good doctrinal churches, we kind of want to shy back from, because we're afraid of excess, Let's don't be afraid of that. Let's don't be afraid of that because we have the guardrails of the Scripture and we have the guardrails of leadership that will keep us from going off the rails, so to speak, in regards to these excess. So the two concerns I have is, number one, is that we're afraid to, uh, to emphasize that the Spirit of God does give experience to the Christian in, in a process of exalting Christ. The other side, and that isn't my fear for us, is that there is an overemphasis of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's out there too. And you've seen some of that. You know, where it is anything but of the Spirit of God. And I'm not going to give you examples of that. That would be worth a study in itself. But we can't overemphasize the Holy Spirit. If you're in a place then it's all about the Holy Spirit, it's all about the Holy Spirit, it's all about the Holy Spirit, I would question the biblical validity of that place. Because it's not all about the Holy Spirit. It's about the triune God. It's about the Trinity. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, he is emphasizing the Trinity, the work of the Trinity. Even in this text we're looking at today, the Spirit of God is recognized as the Spirit of the Trinity, of the Father, of the Son, to exalt the Son and to indwell the believer. And when the believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and the believer is living under the control of the the Holy Spirit, do you know what you're going to find in that believer? Two things. You're going to find a life conforming to the image of Jesus. You're going to find the life of a believer manifesting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit of the Spirit is Christ's character. So that's the first thing. If a person rightly understands the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then there'll be a transformation of that person into the image of Christ. And the chief virtue in that person will be humility. The second thing will be evidence that we will see in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he works inside the believer, there will not only be this transformation about Christ, but there will be this obsession this obsession, and I'm not—I I say it in, in a very good way—an obsession with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't help but talk about Him. You can't help but talk about Him. You say, "Well, I'm afraid to witness. I'm just not good at it." Fall in love with God, and let the Holy Spirit control you and make you like Jesus, and you're going to tell, you're going to share Jesus everywhere you go. Amen. You're going to talk about Him all the time. You're going to be sharing the gospel regularly because. Perfect love does what? Cast out fear. And so where the love of Christ which would really be a good definition of the Holy Spirit because he is the spirit of love where he controls the person, you can't help but be in similar fashion to like the Apostle Paul is that you're going to talk about Jesus in your home. You're going to talk about Jesus in your fellowships. You're going to talk about Jesus in your Sunday schools. You're going to talk about Jesus in in the context still honoring your employer at work. You're going to talk about Jesus at Little League. You're going to talk about Jesus everywhere, but you're not going to be obnoxious. You're going to be irresistible. Because when Jesus controls a person, we're not arrogant and obnoxious. We're actually attractive. And I'm not referring to your physical being. Though All of you are physically attractive, so I'm not saying that. (laughs) But there is an inward beauty that happens in the Christian that flows from the person controlled by the Spirit of God that is irresistible to the hurting, irresistible to the bruised reeds, irresistible to people that look at you and want to say, why are you like you are? And you can say, well, it isn't me. But I can tell you what I used to be, and I can tell you what I am. And what I am is a person who was found. I didn't find. I was found. And thus we have here that. Uh, Derek Thomas said this, quote, It is important for us not to divorce the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of Jesus. That's a very important statement to make. It's because if you so emphasize the Holy Spirit at the expense of Jesus you are actually committing this sin against the Holy Spirit. You are grieving Him. Because Jesus said the Spirit will come and He will what? He will glorify me. He will draw attention to me. And so if you're in these groups and everybody says, oh, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. This is what the Holy, and maybe so, but if Christ is absent from that, then you're violating the very role and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And I would say that you're quenching Him and you are grieving Him. Well, let's go into a little bit more. So what I want to do here today... because because it's important, is I want us to look through this text, verses 9 through 11. We'll see how far we get. Um, And I want us to look at the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do more of him throughout the whole chapter because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of assurance. He's the one that gives us assurance in these texts. And the first thing we need to understand, I've already talked about that good length this morning, is that who who actually indwells us? Remember, the main theme of verses 9 through 11 is indwelling. And I'll talk about dwelling and how that is so practical for us on a daily basis. Is it who indwells us? Well, Paul would say it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who indwells us. So his identity, his identity, as I, as I showed various, which shows us just the wonder of God in the, in the Trinity, is that he's known as the Holy Spirit, he's known as the Spirit of God. He's known as the Spirit of Christ. He is distinct in his role and his identity in the Trinity, but he is a member of the Trinity. Of equal footing, of equal power, of equal deity, each member of the Trinity has a distinction. But each member of the uh, of the Trinity forms the one, the three in one. And it, as Christians, I would challenge you right now to ask yourself: How often do you find yourself communing with the Trinity? Communing with God the Father, communing with God the Son, communing with God the um, the Holy Spirit. We are not to try to figure out the Trinity. We are we are to adore the Trinity. Don't try to figure out this the impossible. One God, three and one. That's how cults start. And you know that. People like TJ Jakes. Is that his name? Yeah, T D Jakes. I should know he's from West Virginia. So but no, I mean what is he he it's modalism. It's modalism where there is no Trinity. It's just God is manifesting certain as Father, as Son, as Spirit, you know. So be careful who you listen to out there. And so some of the things that he says sounds good. But remember, any error mixed with truth is error. It may may sound like it's all good, and it may even read good, and you may think it sounds good. For instance, here's the dangerous author, Sarah Young. Jesus Calling. I mean, that's one where there's actually... uh, She portrays a personification that she talks as if she's receiving revelation from God. What is that? That certainly violates the Trinity. And so let's be very careful in regards to understanding the Trinity. But let's also be quick to understand that the Trinity, as Paul would outline in Romans, they are all so important in our salvation that you cannot have salvation apart from the Trinity. But you also got to be careful is that you don't so emphasize the love of the Father at the expense of the Son. And that you don't so emphasize the atonement in Jesus that you neglect the Spirit. And that you don't so overemphasize the Spirit that you neglect the Father and the Son. It's far, far safer and better just to simply adore the Trinity. Gregory of Nass- Nassianus. I had to like do Google pronunciation, this guy, like five times. I, could, I couldn't get it. He was the fourth century theologian and archbishop of Cant- uh, Constantinople. This is what he said. This is one of his famous sayings in his orations on the Trinity. He says, No sooner do I conceive the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them then I am carried back to the one. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Around 326 he wrote that. Just as real and just as powerful and as beautiful today. When we look at the, when we, we, when we see the splendor of the three, the beauty of the Son, the beauty of the Father, the beauty of the, of the Spirit, he goes, then no sooner did I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And we have in the gospel, by way of his identity, we continue to work through this, uh, the identity of the Spirit of God, I just gave you how Paul would identify him, that um, he has different, I shouldn't say different, but he has distinct recognitions by the Father and the Son. And Paul would write that. The Holy Spirit, he calls himself, obviously, the Holy Spirit. The Father would say that he is the Spirit of God. The Son would say that he is the Spirit of Christ. And we find in in the gospels, In the Gospels of John, in particular, the Upper Room Discourse, we find that it is the Spirit of God, He's identified as the sent one. And who sends the Holy Spirit? And this word, and again, don't try to analyze this, just accept it. I sometimes think that uh, uh, we overthink what God does not want us to overthink. There's a simplicity about being like a child that applies in some of these mysterious doctrines. That we just have to accept them and, and carry them through. Because you know what happens? If you overthink and you start to study, you know what happens? You reduce the wonder and the all down to a cold academic exercise. And you end up having facts that never warms your heart. And you got to be careful. Overthinking. Think, yes. We just talked about that. But if you overthink, you're one step away from lo- losing the all factor of what the gospel is and who God is. Don't overthink it. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Do you notice this? Jesus is asking His Father to send or give the Spirit. And in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, If I go, I will send the comforter or the helper to you. So the Father's going to send Him, yes, and the Son's going to send Him, yes, Jim, can you explain that to me? No. But, but why don't you fall down on your face and worship the God who sent His Spirit? That's far better. And that doesn't make you illiterate. It makes you a worshiper. And so, as you look at these things, the whole, uh, the whole of Romans is just that. It's a Trinitarian interacting and present in Paul's understanding of salvation, and in Jesus' understanding of what what it means to commune with God. Do you understand that you can't know God? You do understand this. You can't know God apart from Jesus. But you can't know God apart from Jesus and the Spirit. Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my, my word, and my Father will love him, and we... We, who's the we in John 14, 23? It's the Father and the Son. Jesus said, we will come to him and make our home with him. That's with the believer. So he's going to come and make his home within the heart of the believer. Well, I can tell you at, in my home, 103 Birchwood Drive, Jesus Christ has never literally walked into my house. And neither has he done yours. And neither has he appeared to you, appeared to you literally. That's going to be in heaven. But for now, Jesus says, me and my Father will come to you. And how is that going to be manifested to us? It's going to be manifested to us by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. John Owen said this, quote, the Father is eternally the Father and not the Son. And the Son is always the Son and not the Father. Well, the Spirit is distinct from the Father and Son through proceeding from both. The Father sends both. And I love what Francis Schaeffer said on this. Quote, how will God the Father and God the Son come to us and make their home with us? They will do so by the person of the Comforter, by the Helper, by the Holy Spirit. And so that's his identity. Do you see... In your own walk with the Lord, do you see this wonderful identity of the Holy Spirit? He comes as the Spirit of God. He comes as the Holy Spirit. He comes as the Spirit of Christ. And his purpose is that he would lift up the Lord Jesus in you and through you. And that he would bring bring both the reality of fellowship with God the Father and God the Son through him. So it is not... It is not wrong for you <clears throat> to say, Father, would you please allow your spirit to reveal to me more and more the wonders of who you are and the wonders of your son. Do you pray like that? Do you pray with a dependency upon the spirit to illuminate your heart and your mind to know God better? That's, that's, he delights in doing that. He del- he's God, remember, and it's even, it's even this, you can pray, you, you can pray to the Holy Spirit, you can pray to Jesus, you can pray to God. People say, well, that's not the pattern in, in Scripture. But if he is equal with the Father and with the Son, there's nothing wrong with that. I know the pattern of the Apostle Paul is prayed to the Father, and I would highly recommend we follow the Apostle Paul. But when you're in, when, when you're in the midst of, of some heavy stuff, it's not wrong to say, Father, please, Holy Spirit, please, comfort me in the midst of this anguish. There's nothing wrong with that. That's communion. That's communion with the triune God. And I will plug a book for you. I, I seem to do that all the time. Is a, there's a book uh, uh, by John Owen that was, um, uh, that was edited, not an abridgment. It's, it's an exposition of John Owen's book on communion with the triune God. And it is the m- most important book, one of the most important books that I've ever read in my life in regards to what it means to commune with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Crossway, put it out. It's worth your time to slug through that. And I would encourage you to read it with somebody else. Read it with another Christian. Read it with the wife. Read it with a spouse, whatever. Okay, let's, do, let's move on now. The, the indwelling. The indwelling. Notice in verses 9 through 11... The indwelling of God, we looked at his identity, now we look at his dwelling. Paul would mention where. We all identified who dwells within us. It's the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Comforter, it's the Helper. Now we come to verses 9 through 11, and I want you to notice how personal this indwelling is. Who is the one that dwells? The Holy Spirit. His identity, now his dwelling. Verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells where in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, that's the spirit of Christ. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When something is repeated so often, it is extremely important. And Paul is reminding these Christians and reminding these young Christians, as he now reminds us, is remember who dwells within you. As I told you earlier, you're never out of the presence of God, and God's presence is never out of you. But it's absolutely important that you as a Christian understand who dwells in you. The word dwell appears three times. It means to inhabit or to take up residency as in a house. Now think about your homes for a minute. And think about a healthy home for a moment where there's harmony in the home. Or after the cruelty, but in the world, you just can't wait to get home. It's like, uh, how many times did she do that? She clicked her heels. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Was that Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz? Yeah, yeah. I like the lion myself. So need a little courage. Um, so when you look at this, the Spirit of God being in your house, I would ask you this question: What's the condition of your house? What's the condition of your house? And your house, as a Christian, it's the heart. It's the heart. He says he dwells within you, he dwells uh, deep within you in the very place that's the throne room for God alone. The very personal nature of the Holy Spirit dwells in you must be understood that he is not an, an inanimate force, he is a person. I know the King James says uh, he, he is an it. Uh, the the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. As a Christian, you need to ask yourself the question, is my lifestyle such that I am making my house where he dwells not a very inviting place to him? Here's a couple ways you can uh, make the Holy Spirit not feel welcome in your heart. When's the last time you really spend quality time reading your Bible? When's the last time you spend quality time, you know, um, uh, praying, seeking communion with God. Remember, the Spirit of God is also the Spirit of prayer. He's also the Spirit of love. He's also the author of the book that we are talking out of. And so you should ask yourself every day if you're a Christian, what is the condition of my home where God lives within me? And that, in some cases, that can be a very humbling, humbling exercise. But yet, as you look inside where He dwells, you need to understand that he is a person. Personal pronouns are given to the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. Personal traits are given to him. He can be grieved, as I mentioned. He can be quenched. When Paul and Barnabas were sent off, the Holy Spirit said, send them off to what I have called them to do. I called them. The Spirit of God it has personal pronouns. He has personal traits. He can be lied to. Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, Satan has filled you with heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. I already mentioned the grieving and the, love, uh, and the loving of the Spirit. An in- inanimate power source or an impersonal force can't love, and it can't, be li- can't, it can't be lied to. If there's anything of value that I want you to take away today, I want you to understand, if you're a Christian, you are responsible to keep your house clean. God will not clean it up. And if you're letting worldliness crowd, crowd in there and grieving the Spirit of God, and if you're so wrapped up in the things of this horizontal world, you've got no time for God, your priorities are wrong. Because you were created and saved that He would sit on the throne of your heart. And I would say that you're probably stressed, you're probably miserable, you probably have no joy, you might have some tension in your relationships. Why is that? Because the one who makes all relationships harmony is being grieved and quenched because you are dirtying up his home. And I am dirtying up his home. We also see that there's personal roles given by the Holy Spirit. He's a helper. He prays for us. So let me give you one other application to this this portion. Every day realize who lives within you. And do everything that you possibly can to keep your temple clean. To keep your temple from being clouded with and flooded with all the worldliness and all the things of this world. And be very careful that you don't allow idols to take up residency in your heart. You say, well, I don't have idols. I said, really? Really? Your job can be an idol. Money can be an idol. Hobbies can be an idol. Recreation can be an idol. Pleasure can be an idol. Family can be an idol. Now, don't get up and walk away because I said that. (laughs) Parents, you can make your kids idols. And if they're keeping you from the things of God, you have. And I'm not bashing, I mean, no. The best thing you can do is to raise your kids in the admonition and, and, and the things of the Lord. Not to neglect those. That's parental, that's, that's parental malpractice, not raising your kids in the things of the Lord. But my point is I want you to understand that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that the Spirit of God could come and dwell within us to change us like Christ, to let us know this living God and tell the world around us that they need to know this God. And Paul would say that He dwells within you. Oh, be careful how you walk. I think there's Christians who walk around their whole Christian life perpetually grieving and quenching the Spirit and are not even aware of it. And there's multiple ways that you can determine that. Has church become just a... Is oh. church is something that if you're not here, it's okay? If it's here, when's it over? Well, it's not over yet, so... There's all kinds of ways you can find out whether or not that the Spirit of God is grieved and quenched in your life. If the things of God have lost their, their, their attraction to you and if you've lost zeal for the things of God, then you have in fact dirtied your heart and the Spirit of God is grieved. But I want you to notice something, another thing about this dwelling that Paul mentions in verses nine through 11. It's permanent. You can't lose it. Well, you can't lose him. You can't lose him. I said it. You know, most of my life, it was as a Christian. It was King James. I'm all over that. Uh, but the reality of it is, he is personal, and he's permanent. When he comes within you, he seals you. Ephesians chapter one says, "In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit." A seal is is just like justification. Justification is not a process. We looked at it. Justification is once and for all. Sealing is once and for all. It is an unchanging act. Now, you may not live like a sealed Christian, and you may have fallen, fallen out of the wayside or going on the prodigal trail. You may, have lost, you may have lost your joy, but you haven't lost the salvation that comes with that. Sealing is a, is, is a stamp of authenticity, and here, get this, it is a stamp of ownership. God looks at you, and he chooses you, and he enables you to believe, and you get born again by the Spirit. And what happens is that he seals you and says, you are mine. You are mine. And that's what happens in the Christian life. If you're not living like Jesus owns you, that's why you're struggling. Because you're kicking against the goads. You're actually trying to wear two yokes. Instead of wearing yoke of Christ, he says, my, my yoke is what? Gentle. But you're trying to live your will and his will, and it's rutted against each other, and guess who always wins? He does. So the ceiling is permanent. You'll never lose that. Now, there's a place in your bulletin. I'm not going to go over any of these at all for the sake of time, but I gave, I gave you some of the ministries just so you would realize the riches that we have in the Holy Spirit. We're going to unfold more of his ministries further on in Romans chapter eight, as I mentioned. But if you look at in, 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 on your outline, his ministries there are so many there. Did you realize this is what the Holy Spirit does for you and in you? This thing is long, and I'm so afraid that we don't recognize that. I know I don't at times, and it feels like he whispers to me, Jim. I'm here. I'm here. I do these. I, I'm here. Well, let's wind this down. Let's wind this down. Oh, yes, I do. I do. I had that. Let's, let's do that. So uh, I'll, I'll read quickly through this. If you were here a long, long time when I first started, I read real, real fast. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, I'll go back to the old days. Here's what um, his ministries are. He seals us, Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians He imprints what that is imprinting the divine image in subscription. He teaches 1 Corinthians 2.13. He reveals 1 Corinthians 2.10. He reproves John 16:8. He strengthens Ephesians 3.16. He makes us fruitful, Galatians 5.22. He searches, 1 Corinthians 2.10. He strives, Genesis 6.3. He sanctifies 1 Corinthians 6.11. He leads Romans 8:14. Uh, Psalm one forty three ten. He instructs Nehemiah nine twenty nine. He speaks 1 Timothy four one. Revelation two seven. He demonstrates or proves 1 Corinthians two four. He intercedes Romans eight twenty six. He quickens Romans eight eleven. He gives utterance uh, Acts two four. He creates Psalm one hundred four thirty. He comforts John fourteen twenty six. He sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts Romans five five. He renews Titus three five. And I would add another one. He makes us bold to speak the word of God. That's in the book of Acts. And so if you're afraid to speak the word of God, then just pray to the Father and say, Father, please let me understand what you've already given me in the power of the Holy Spirit. I can be bold in him because of the gift that you've given me. Well, in light of that, we're not going to cover uh, part B today. Uh Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week because there's some things here that we really need to to look at. And um, as you might imagine, we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 8. I think it's so important because I want you to be assured of your your faith. And I want you to understand the, the riches that we have in the Holy Spirit and that we have the wonderful balance of a Trinitarian salvation that God gave us His Spirit so that we could live the Christian life and that we would enjoy the Christian life. And remember this, as we prepare for communion, remember this. Your heart is the home of God. You are responsible to keep that squeaky clean. That's not legalism, that's obedience out of love for God. And so keep your heart clean so the Holy Spirit will dwell within us, in our homes, comfortably and Allow us to enjoy what he wants to do in us all these things let 's pray, Father, Thank you so much for your great, great love to us and 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 just the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us when we don 't understand more and more of this great gift we have in him and Lord, as we observe the the, the table as we observe this this wonderful ordinance you 've given us, may we do so thinking about our home being the Uh, the place, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if we've dirtied up the home, then give us confession now and repentance so that we can take the table and we can do so with confidence that you've forgiven us and that we'll lead today with greater resolve that I am not going to cause the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit to be one that grieves him or quenches him. And Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.